Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this will be either a two or three parter entitled Essentials of Gastrointestinal Imaging. Now, actually, uh, the part I'm going to give you is the part that I did in the Essentials course at RSNA 2009, and I did this with Brooke Jeffrey and with Karen Horton. And I spoke about some of the principles of CT angiography in the GI tract, and I focused on liver imaging. Brooke gave us great talk on pancreas, and Karen did a terrific talk on small bowel and mesentery. But those guys are not going to be here today, so it's just going to be me. So let me tell you what I spoke about. We noted that CT obviously has been evolving and evolving quickly, and CT angiography, although we did it at four slice and at 16 slice, 64 slice made the big difference. The routine isotropic data sets became critical, and everything beyond 64, whether a dual source, 128, 256, 320, whatever else comes along is only going to make things better. The key things at 64 were the ability to get large volume data sets with high spatial resolution. Now the thing that we've seen since then is the scan times have decreased so that each of these spins I'm showing you here is really the length of time it took to get that entire acquisition. So now with the newest of scanners shown in RSNA 2009, we can do the entire abdomen in under a second and in many cases under half a second. And so this is really impacting across a range of applications, particularly in CT angiography in the GI tract. Now, there are many ways to approach CT angiography. I commented at the meeting we could speak about it on an organ-by-organ -organ basis. We can talk about applications from tumor detection to IBD to GI bleeding to the acute abdomen to surgical planning. But we recognize no matter how we look at it, the goals are the same, optimizing detection of disease, providing additional information beyond that provided by axial imaging, and becoming a single source of information for disease staging, allowing for better uh, patient triage and indeed patient management. So the first thing we do and the first thing we speak about is scan protocols. There's no doubt with CT angiography, as with all of CT, the protocols are very important, but one of the key things, of course, is protocols are machine-specific. So whether you're doing single source or dual source, 64 or 256, you need to make certain the protocols match your scanner. And that includes anything from pitch to MAS to KVP. And also it's important to recognize that your protocols will define how you give contrast, both in terms of injection rate and in many cases in terms of volume. Now, regardless of the scanner, some concepts remain true in that, for example, typically we're going with 0.75 millimeter thick sections. Every 0.5, we have this very nice overlap. And we do that on our 64 as well as dual source imaging. Now, patient prep is critical. We always give positive contrast. Wrong. We always give contrast, but it's water. So we always give water as a contrast agent, and that indeed works very nicely. And the amount of IV contrast we give will be very much dependent on the situation. And the type of contrast we give will be dependent on the patient's renal function and any risk factors. So typically, we'll use either Omni 350 or Visi 320. Now, in terms of protocols, typically for these GI tract imaging, we're doing dual phase arterial and venous. We rarely do non-contrast and rarely do delayed phase imaging. Now, the question then is, how do you determine the scan parameters in terms of delay? We've always said for a lot of things, the fixed delay works very nicely, going at about 25 to 30 seconds arterial and coming back at about 60 to 70 seconds venous. And in fact, that does work very nicely for many applications. 
However, as scanners get faster, where the entire scan time, as I mentioned, is a second or less, you need to be a little bit more accurate in terms of the timing. And so there, bolus triggering becomes very important. Now, you can do test bolus also for timing, and we do test bolus routinely in cardiac CT, but in the abdomen, you don't want to really use test bolus because then you have contrast on board in the kidneys, in the liver. You change a lot of the basic parameters in terms of enhancement. So bolus triggering works great. And you can see the importance with the faster scanners. If you have a 64-slice scan and you're doing liver or pancreas, you're talking about about 23 centimeters. That's about 10 seconds with a 64. But with our new dual source, 128 by 2, it's under half a second. So by the time you press the button, the study is over. So you have to be at the right point or you're not going to be there. And that's really where the, uh, the uh, bolus tracking works nicely. Here's a good example. Doing an abdomen, you pick a trigger point, upper abdomen around the celiac. There it is on the non-contrast. You're giving the contrast. Here it is 169. And here it is at 277. Now, the thing we do with the faster scanners is we raise our trigger point. If the scan's only at half a second or a second, you don't want to be triggering at 180. You want to be triggering at 270. If it's a 10-second scan, a 170 or 180 trigger is going to work very nicely. Also, you have to build into how fast your scanner is after you press the button. Is it a one-second delay or a five-second delay or somewhere in between? And here's just a nice schematic showing you bolus tracking. In this case, hit that peak of 230 and bam. It took off to the races. And you can see how nicely it works because the same patient, when you do this scan a couple seconds later, you're at the 500 Hounsfield level, which is just spectacular for doing uh, 3D imaging. Also, because scan times are very quickly, the attenuation of value of the proximal aorta and the distal aorta is the same. So you can see the very nice homogeneous appearance, looking at celiac, SMA, and IMA. And here's just two more images showing it to you with volume and MIP and making the point that the quality of the 3Ds is very dependent on contrast opacification. The more homogeneous the column, the better the imaging will look. And of course, the high density of the contrast indeed becomes very critical. Now, you don't always hit 500. And for CTA, over 300 works very nicely. But at times, a little more definitely works better. Now, another important thing, and we've spoken about this many times, and CT Angio does not live on axial imaging. It's everything beyond axials, from multiplanar to all of the 3D reconstructions techniques. And you can look at it in this simple example, which I showed, and said, look, here's Crohn's disease. I agree you see the thick and small bowel very nicely in the ilium. You put it in coronal, shows it a little better. You appreciate the length of the small bowel thickening. You appreciate some of the mesenteric abnormalities. It's much better defined than it was in the axial imaging. But take that into 3D and look at the MIP imaging and look at the vascularity in the vasorecta, the very prominent vessels. You really can't appreciate the detail and information on either the axial or the coronals. And just look at the type of detail we can get. This patient has increased vessels in the vasorecta. This is consistent with active disease. The patient will be treated aggressively. And here's the same patient looking at the volume rendering. So again, you can see how much additional information we get. Or this case, patient has a cystic pancreatic lesion, but as you go from axial to coronal, and as you go from coronal to volume rendering, you understand better the composition of this 
cystic mass. You see the larger septations, and as you go from volume to MIP, you really do appreciate the septations and large cystic spaces, and you're really talking about a serous cyst adenoma. You also show very nicely lack of vascular involvement. Good example of the portal vein and SMV abutting and slightly being pushed, but not being involved by the patient's primary process. And finally, curved planar reconstruction, which you know Brooks spoke about looking at the pancreatic duct, but in this patient with a stent in the SMA, looking at stent patency, you can scroll axially, but it's really when you take things into the curved planar reconstruction, here I'm showing you a sagittal, showing you the stent with a MIP image, just not the way you need to do things or volume rendering, but I can use the volume rendering for tracking the vessel, and then I'm showing you the vessel nicely here, and we can see the vessel is patent, stents in good position, there is no issue, there is no stenosis, there is no complication. Okay? Very good. So that's some of the basis of what we need to look at. Now let's be specific. I spoke about liver imaging and mentioned not so much the surface of the liver we're looking at, the volume, but we're looking at the vessels. So whether we're looking at a normal hepatic artery, as in this case with normal branching, or we're looking at an SMA and celiac arising off a common trunk, or a case like this where the splenic and hepatic arteries arise directly off the aorta, you can see the type of anatomy we can define, whether it's for hepatic surgery or pancreatic surgery. You can see the smallest of lesions, in this case a small pseudoaneurysm of the hepatic artery in a patient post a stab wound. You see the stab wound, you see the pseudoaneurysm. Again, easier to recognize within the 3D volume than it might be on an axial image. And it's not just in the arterial phase. So I look at this example of portal vein in a cirrhotic patient, portal vein, SMV, splenic vein, a patent, but look at the large varices, dilated gastric vein, splenorenal shunting, large esophageal varices, large gastric varices, all very nicely shown on that set of images and on this set of images. How about this next example? Cirrhosis, small liver, nodular, but look at those vessels, those recanalized umbilical vein, and you see on the axials where it is, but look at the 3D. Look how nicely you can appreciate going over the surface of the liver, extending upward toward the lower esophagus, and again, very nice visualization showing you the whole process. And finally, this example of a cirrhotic patient, nice example of a wet bowel. You can see the thickened bowel loops, you see the ascites. On the MIP images, very nice increased vessel flow from portal vein into mesenteric vessels. And when you go from these images to the volume rendered, you really get a good appreciation of the increased flow in a patient with portal hypertension and cirrhosis. Now, when we look at the liver, you can see examples here of the type of vascularity we can see in the liver. This is a very interesting case because you'd have to worry about tumor, but this is all cirrhosis with AV shunting. You see the vessels on the 3D map are kind of splayed a little bit, but there's no neovascularity. And I agree, I am worried too about tumor, but there was no tumor here. The patient has huge varices on the venous side. Look at those esophageal varices. Look at the nutmeg appearance to the liver on delayed phase imaging. And again, just a few more images showing the large esophageal varices, the large gastric varices, the extreme shunting in this patient. No wonder this patient would be at risk for GI bleeding. Just a beautiful example as I roam through the images, okay? 
very good look at the venous phase of things. Again, interesting example where the arterial phase makes you really worry about tumor, but there was no tumor on biopsy in this patient. Finally, in portal vein thrombosis, here's a non-occlusive thrombus in the portal vein. You see collaterals, you see cavernous transformation of the portal vein, which is best seen when you go from axial mode into the coronal or 3D mode. There's the partial thrombosis of the portal vein, and there are the very large collaterals in the porta hepatis. Or in this example, same case, volume rendering and MIP really showing you very nicely the cavernous transformation of the portal vein. So let me go a little more forward and show you where CTA really fits in. And I'll focus on tumors, focusing mainly on malignancies, but first let me talk about some of the classic appearances which will help you of benign lesions. I've spoken about this in past talks a bit, looking at hepatic cysts, well-defined water density, no rim enhancement, nicely seen, and on the CT angiographic map, no surprise, large enough, you get mass effect, the vessels are splayed, they're not invaded, there's no neovascularity, there's no abnormal blushing, there's no abnormal anything. Simply splaying because of mass effect. Okay, that's simple. Hemangioma. Good example of a classic lesion, usually well recognized axially, but sometimes not. On the 3D map, as you go from axial to MIP, you can see the puddling better. So sometimes you don't appreciate that puddling that's kind of patchy enhancement in the liver. You don't really appreciate it if you look at the axials. But when you go into 3D volumes, as in this case, but particularly 3D MIP where you see the puddling, you see the feeding vessel, uh, you bring it around again. Another example, early phase, sometimes you don't get the puddling as well as you would like, but it's suggestive and here it is when you go to 3D, nice feeding vessel. Once in a while the vessels are enlarged with hemangiomas, but they're not irregular. But usually they're small. But again, if you look hard enough, it's not uncommon to see a feeding vessel in a hemangioma. That's no great surprise. It's a, uh, it's a benign process, but it is very vascular. And here it is again, some other additional images looking at the MIP, showing you the vessel nicely, or looking at the volume display. Again, showing you that puddling. So again, in the volume, that puddling is very easy to recognize. And whether it's small lesions or it's big lesions, just very, very classic example. And I don't think any of you are going to have problems with this. Let me just mention one last thing in terms of benign lesions, and I'll stop. Focal nodular hyperplasia. Again, I won't go through details from the demographics. Usually it's female. But classic thing, hypervascular, but only as bright as the IVC, not as bright as the aorta. Something we see more of these days because we scan earlier and earlier. When you look at the CT angiographic map, you get a beautiful view, often a feeding vessel, hepatic artery, which can be hypertrophied, going to the center of the lesion, as in this example, and the lesion washes out very quickly. When you recognize it, it's a benign lesion. This patient was operated on, but there's no need for a benign lesion. Central scar is not uncommon, as in this example. Notice its brightness is IVC, not aorta. And here we basically look at it when it washes out. Now, in most cases, these lesions become isodense. Sometimes when they're very large, you see the splaying of vessels. They're not isodense right away. Another example, same type of appearance, looks almost the same coronally, axially. In this case, there's a hypertrophy, the feeding hepatic artery, okay? So in terms of key findings from a CT angiographic perspective, hypervascular on arterial phase imaging, but homogeneous central scar 
with feeding vessel often large. FNH can be multiple. Here's a good example. Multiple FNHs. Look at the feeding vessel into the upper lesion. Um, very nice feeding vessel, and the feeding vessel tends to go centrally near the area of the central scar. Very nice example. And just to show you over and over, another case, central scar, vascular, IVC vascular, not aorta. There's the feeding vessel, and here it is over time, from arterial to venous to delayed. No problem. Now you can say is, could I be certain this wasn't an islet cell tumor? Remember, it doesn't get that bright. Vascular mets get really bright. And here's just a very nice example of a very nice vascular metastasis. Okay, no problem. And again, we've written about this, and I think you'll see some more articles about this. Now, the last lesion, and I guess let me just touch on it a bit, will be hepatic adenomas. We mentioned this with FNHs because it's often the differential diagnosis. Hepatic adenomas tend to be more aggressive. Uh, FNH never becomes malignant. Hepatic adenomas can be considered pre-malignant conditions. Hepatic adenomas often spontaneously rupture, and their clinical pre presentation may be just that. Their enhancement pattern, the vascular, not as much in FNH, and it, it is very variable. If you see a lesion like this in a bled, you can say hemangioma, hepatoma, but it's typically hepatic adenoma until proven otherwise. Or this case, sometimes once the lesion bleeds, it ruptures. You see the bleed, but you don't see the tumor mass proper. So a nice example of showing you that. Other times, it's interesting that sometimes on late phase, it shows better. Early phase, there's mass effect, left lobe of liver. You follow it out a bit coronally. It's kind of subtle, but there's a mass there. You look at the angiographic map. There's some stretching of the left hepatic artery but you don't see any real neovascularity present. And there it is again. But when you go to late phase imaging, when the vein's filling in, now you see vein displacement, the veins are irregular. Uh, again, one of those classic appearances are suggesting FNH. FNH is often multiple, that can be helpful. Birth control pills are common. It's usually always females. Patients with glycogen storage disease, patients with anabolic steroids, they can get it as well. Okay, those are the benign ones where I want to give you the CT angiographic mapping appearances. And then I spoke about malignancies. And why don't we take a break here and we'll come back and talk about malignancies. Thanks very much.